Hello, and welcome to Beach House 34, the show that dives deep into true crime cases, revealing the truths behind crimes that reveal shocking secrets, stories sure to make you just a little more paranoid, and maybe even lose sleep. Here's your host, Christine Wirth. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part five of Darley Routier, Did She or Didn't She? Um, now, if you've been paying attention or following along, I guess is a better way to say that, um, we've kind of been going through the whole Darley Routier case. And so far, we've we've had, the, obviously, four different episodes prior to this. But if you missed the first four episodes, uh, they are episode numbers 33, 34, 35, and 37 and you can actually find these on your favorite podcast platform or even on youtube and what we're doing is we are going through right now a hearing to hold darley without bond and the reason that i'm going through this is that because some major players that go ahead and testify in the actual trial actually testify during this bond hearing and they have some very interesting things to say so as I did in a part four, episode 37, what I'll do is give you a really brief recap as to what this whole story is kind of about so that you're, you're caught up. But if you want all of the details, I highly, highly suggest listening to the previous episodes. This will give you far more in-depth information than I can give you here. Now, in the last episode... I read the testimony of lead detective or one of the lead detectives, Jimmy Patterson, that he gave at the hearing to hold Darley without bond. Now, the next person to testify is Charles Lynch, who was the trace evidence analyst at the Institute of Forensic Sciences in Dallas. And he discusses a lot of things, but uh, mainly the blood spatter. So before we get too far, let's go through the recap. In the early morning hours of June 6th of 1996, Darley Routier was sound asleep in the downstairs family room with her two children, Damon, who was five, and Devin, who was six. The children were asleep on the floor with their pillows and blankets, and Darley was lying on one of the couches. They had all been watching television and had fallen asleep. The television and the sound were still on. Darley's husband, Darren, was in the upstairs bedroom sleeping with their youngest son, Drake, who was eight months old. Now, Drake was in a bassinet or crib in the parents' bedroom. Around 2.22 in the morning, Damon and Devin were attacked and stabbed viciously. Darley sustained cuts to her throat, her shoulder, and her forearm. Later, Darley would make a statement to the police that she had been awakened and saw someone inside of her home. The assailant moved away from her and went through the utility room and into the garage. Investigators noticed that one of the screens within the garage had been cut open. The window to the garage itself had also been left open, which was unusual. Darley went after the intruder and followed him into the utility room. According to Darley, she saw him drop a knife on the floor, which she instinctively picked up. But her decision to pick up that knife raised doubts with the police and investigators regarding her claim of an intruder. 
Now, after the police dispatcher had instructed her not to touch anything, Darley admitted that she had already handled the knife. She quickly realized that she may have compromised fingerprints and acknowledged that fact with the dispatcher. Darley's call came into 911 at 2.30 in the morning. The call lasted nearly six minutes. The first officer on the scene, David Waddell, arrived around 2.33 in the morning, according to his testimony, just three minutes after Darley had called 911. The second officer, James Walling, arrived around 2.35 a.m. Now, we know by now that after all this happened and everything, that Darley was arrested for the murder of her two children. But there's always been controversy surrounding that. And this is because, among other things, the man who walked the crime scene hours after it happened, James Cron, determined within 20 to 30 minutes that it was someone from inside the house. Now, at this point, he didn't even know that 75 yards down the alley behind the Routier home was a sock that contained Devin and Damon's blood on it. The police quickly cleared Darren, which left only one other suspect, Darley. Her bail was set, um, was first set a few months after the crime, and it was set at $1 million. It was $500,000 per child. This new hearing uh, that I've been covering is to hold Darley without bail. And this hearing takes place at the end of August, and it does last for three days. So far during this bail hearing, uh, we have heard the testimony of the doctor who performed the autopsy on Damon, the youngest child, as well as testimony from Officer David Waddell, the first officer on the scene that night. Uh, We have heard from Darren, who was uh, questioned at this hearing. And we have also heard from one of the detectives, Detective Patterson, in the previous episode. Now, this particular episode is going to uh, continue with the hearing to hold Darley without bond, but now we're moving on to the testimony of Charles Lynch, uh, who essentially is going to talk about the blood spatter. What I do want to let you know is that in an earlier episode, I had said that I'm going to go ahead and actually do the entire trial transcripts because although it's written, it's not really available to watch anywhere, which... um, Boy, I really wish it would have been, but nonetheless, um, I'm going to be releasing episodes of the the actual trials transcripts and bookmark them so that uh, with chapters so that it's really easy for you to navigate. That actual trial, the actual trial, lasted for three weeks, so that series may be a bit long. If you listen on YouTube, I have set aside a separate playlist specifically for the Darley Routier episodes, just so that they're a bit easier. To navigate. Um, now, as you can tell, this is a complicated and interesting case, and um, probably the reason why so many people are invested in it is because uh, Darley currently sits on death row in Texas, and uh, of course she's gone through her appeals and everything. Rumor has it, I haven't verified this yet, that the Innocence Project is potentially, if not have already, uh, taken over this case because they believe that the evidence just wasn't there 
Um, I'm not quite sure how to put that at this point in time, but um, so that's kind of just sitting out there. Like I said, I haven't verified it or anything, but um, it, it is very interesting. And if I do hear more, I'll definitely let you know. Um, I have actually become more and more interested in what I've learned as time goes on because it's been 27 years and so many things have happened since that crime first occurred. You know, not to mention the, uh, the advances that we've made in DNA uh, testing. So whether or not I'll be able to cover absolutely everything regarding um, the case itself, not just the trial, but the case itself, I really doubt it. There's just way too much out there, but um, I'm going to try and give you the most comprehensive information I can without following too many rabbit holes. So with all of that said, what follows is the remainder of the testimony for this hearing to hold Darley without bond. And this last portion begins with the testimony of Charles Lynch. So what I'll be doing is, uh, as I've done in the past, is just literally go through the entire testimony. Um, and we start with uh, Charles Lynch. As I said, he's been sworn, he's sitting on the stand, and the direct examination is begun by the prosecutor, Mr. Greg Davis. And Mr. Davis says, Sir, would you please tell us your full name? My name is Charles Lynch, L-I-N-C-H. Mr. Lynch, how are you employed? Currently employed as a trace evidence analyst at the Institute of Forensic Sciences here in Dallas. How long have you been employed in that capacity? I have been at the Institute off and on for the last 16 years. I have been in trace evidence for the last nine years. All right, let me ask you, if you would, to briefly detail your educational and professional background that allows you to hold your present position. And he answers, from 1983 until 1987, I was a field agent at the Institute. I went to the scene of over 500 death scenes during those four years. 102 of those were homicides, 133 were suicides, and 82 were accidents, and another 18 were unclassified. I have a Bachelor of Science from the University of Houston. I attended the FBI Hair and Fiber School, the FBI Forensic and Serology School, and the FBI DNA Analysis, Analysis School. Excuse me. Let me ask you, what training or experience have you had in analyzing blood drops or blood patterns at death scenes? The Forensic Serology School offered instruction by Special Agent Bob Spaulding with the FBI. As part of your duties, do you also make microscopic examinations and analysis of items such as a hair? Yes, I do. Mr. Greg Davis then asks if he can approach and the court says sure. And Mr. Davis says, do you have an opportunity, did you have an opportunity at some point, Mr. Lynch, to go out to 5801 Eagle Drive? Yes, I did. Do you recall when you first went out there? It was about 1230 on June the 6th. And did you have an opportunity to walk through the house and examine the house? Yes, I did. Let me start with the first photograph of the utility room there at 5801 Eagle Drive. Do you recognize that photograph? Yes, I do. And the blood droplets, are there blood droplets on the ground there? Yes, there are. All right, first of all, let me ask you whether there is any blood evidence here that would be consistent with a knife having been, a blood-soaked knife, having been dropped on the utility floor. No, sir, there isn't. All right. 
And what would you expect to see if a knife with blood on it had, in fact, been dropped on the floor of the utility room? You would expect to see some kind of spatter where the knife had hit, and then maybe some skid to go with it, depending on how much velocity it had. Okay, did you find any of that on the floor of the utility room? I did not. You talked about some velocity. If you would, just generally, what is velocity with regards to blood drops? Well, the whole science or art of blood spatter is based in the physical flight characteristics of blood. That is, blood will have a specific appearance on a specific surface given a particular volume at a particular speed. And so the, that is what the area of blood spatter entails. All right, well, for instance, if I am standing here and I am bleeding and I drop straight down on the floor, is that going to be a drop with no velocity to it? That is right, other than the perpendicular component. All right, if I am bleeding and I walk across this courtroom at some sort of speed, are you going to expect to see some sort of velocity or angle change on the blood drops on the floor? It would depend on how fast you are walking and if your arm was swinging or not and the type of vessel that was injured. If it was a split arterial spurting, it would be different than just a subcutaneous cut. All right, the blood drops here on the utility room floor, do they evidence a velocity? Well, there's no appreciable velocity other than just straight down. All right. What conclusion would you draw from the fact that there is no velocity with the blood drops that are in the utility room? Well, a person is either walking very slowly or standing over the area where the blood drops were produced. Okay, did you find any blood in the garage? At the time of our visit, there was what appeared to be some blood out by the freezer. I was later informed that that had probably been tracked by the police and the first responders. It was not seen earlier. Okay. Did you also have an opportunity to observe the kitchen floor? I did. If we could, if we could look at the diagram here that has been marked as defendant's exhibit. No, well, actually, this is, this is actually state's exhibit number D. Okay. This being a diagram that includes the kitchen. First of all, if we will look here on the east side of the island in the kitchen, you see there is a red line that extends from the, basically what we have been calling the kitchen, the bar there that separates the kitchen from the living room. There is a line, a red line, that goes from that point over toward the utility room. Can you describe the blood drops that you found in that area, sir? There was quite a bit of blood in that area. On the floor, a large percentage of those blood drops are very similar to the blood drops in the utility room. They appear to have just a downward component with no accompanying horizontal velocity. All right, let me ask you then. The blood drops that you found on the east side of the island, would they be consistent or inconsistent with an individual running through that area who is bleeding or either had a bloody object in his hand. Inconsistent. The same type of blood drops that you found in the utility room. Is that right? That's right. In that nature? That's right. The blood was very sparse on the east side of the island. Did you find any bloody footprints in that area of the kitchen? I recall the bloody footprints more toward the kitchen sink area. 
all right? So whatever footprints that you found would have been on the west side of the island. Is that correct? That's right. And headed toward the den. Now, if we look at the diagram and if we can envision a line that goes from the utility room toward the kitchen sink, did you also find some blood drops in that area of the kitchen? In addition to that on the floor? No, sir. I'm talking about on the kitchen floor in the area of the kitchen floor. This would be on the west side of the island leading from the utility room towards the kitchen sink, where there also some blood drops on that portion of the floor. Yes, sir, there were. All right, and did those blood drops evidence velocity or not? They did not. They had the same slow motion type character to them. Would they be consistent or inconsistent with someone having run who was bleeding or either carrying a bloody object in that part of the kitchen? They could have been carrying a bloody object, but they were not running. Now, if we can, if we can talk about the portion of the kitchen that deals with the area right here in front of the kitchen sink, extending back toward the edge of the kitchen bar, toward the living room or the den area. Were there blood drops there also? Yes, sir. Let's talk about first the amount of blood on the floor. Was it the same amount of blood or less blood or more blood than you had seen on the other portions of the kitchen floor? There was a greater smear amount of blood in that area. Do you recall there being a throw rug or an area rug right here in front of the kitchen sink? I don't have a specific recollection of it, no sir. If we could, if we could look at States Exhibit 13 and 14, do you see a green flowery rug here depicted on both of those photographs? Yes, I do. I later examined that rug in the laboratory. Okay, is that in fact a rug that would have been placed pretty much in front of the kitchen sink then? I don't know. Okay, let's take a look at the area then. Again, leading from the sink toward the to the kitchen bar. Did you find bloody footprints in that portion of the room, sir? Yes, sir. And were they going in any particular direction or not? They were headed leaving the kitchen sink area and toward the either the front door or the den, but in that general direction, away from the kitchen sink. All right, did you find any bloody footprints that led toward the sink, sir? No, I didn't. All right. Would the bloody footprints that you found be consistent or inconsistent with an individual who is bleeding, pacing back and forth between this kitchen sink toward the island or the end of this kitchen bar, pacing repeatedly in this area? Would it be consistent or inconsistent with what you found with regards to the footprints? I think it would be inconsistent, provided that each pace went back to the original blood source that the foot is then tracking further. The bloodiest footprint was the only one headed away from the sink, but there were no other significant bloody feet prints. Okay. But there were more than one bloody footprint, was there not? Yes, sir. Okay. In fact, on States Exhibit number 14, we can find several different bloody footprints leading away from the kitchen sink. Is that right? That's right. But again, you found no bloody footprints that would have led toward the kitchen sink. Is that right? They are all leading away. Now, in that area, did you also find some bloody footprints that were actually underneath broken glass? 
I don't recall that. Okay, if we could, if we could look here on state's exhibits number 14, do you recall that we have looked at this and we have found what appears to be a piece of broken glass lying on top of one of the bloody footprints? Yes, sir. Okay, looking at state's, state's exhibit number 13 and 14, are they in fact showing the same area of that kitchen? Yes, they are. The animal food trays on the floor and the trash can are both present in the photograph for orientation. And when we look at state's exhibit number 13, really the only difference is a little bit of the angle is different. And also, we have a vacuum cleaner that is down on the floor. Is that right? That's right. Did you find bloody footprints underneath this vacuum cleaner that had been laid on the floor? There are bloody footprints under the vacuum cleaner. The vacuum cleaner had been removed prior to my arrival. Okay, but with regard to these photographs where you can, in one, see the vacuum cleaner lying down and in another, the area that exhibits bloody footprints would be underneath the overturned vacuum cleaner. So is it fair to say that we have bloody footprints that are underneath this vacuum cleaner? Yes, sir. Do we also have broken glass that is underneath this vacuum cleaner? Yes, sir. Okay, let me ask you also, with regards to the portion of the kitchen, and this is going to be in the area of the kitchen, roughly by the end of the kitchen, the bar. Do you recall there being a wine rack also? Yes, I do. Did you find, well, let me just ask you this. Was the blood evidence there consistent or inconsistent with a struggle having occurred in that portion of the kitchen with an individual who had a knife in his hand. That is inconsistent. That is a fairly small area and a fairly unstable wine rack was in that area. Did you find any cast off blood in that portion of the kitchen? No, sir. And what would cast off blood have indicated to you if you had found it there? Well, cast off is a term that is referred to the type of pattern you see after a knife has been bloodied and it is in this type of motion. I didn't see any of that. So for instance, if you and I were standing in that portion of the kitchen and I have a knife with blood on the edges of it and I am attempting to fight you and you are struggling with me and I am pulling back with that knife in order to stab you, is that where we will get the blood cast off from the blade of that knife onto an object higher, perhaps on a wall? That's right. Matter of fact, in this entire house, did you find any blood that you would, con you would consider to be high in elevation? The highest blood present in the house that I saw was at the light fixture that is near the wine rack that we just talked about. Did that appear to be cast off blood or another type of blood? it would be consistent with a bloody hand going to the light switch. Now, if we can, if we can talk about, let's talk about this kitchen sink for a moment. Did you have an opportunity to observe the kitchen sink out there? Yes, I did. Can you tell the court what you found when you examined that sink? Well, the kitchen sink and the faucet fixture is stainless steel material and the stainless steel has been, had been cleaned of blood, including the faucet. The faucet tested positive for the presumptive presence of blood that wasn't visible, but was still picked up. So that area had been cleaned. Okay. 
And again, exactly what are you basing your opinion on that kitchen sink was cleaned? What do you mean by cleaned, first of all? The double sinks themselves were devoid of blood with the exception of some watered down bloody material that had dripped down. The area in front of the sink and below the sink had a significant amount of blood to it. That blood, in my opinion, could not have occurred without getting some into the sink. So it's been cleaned. And the second thing is that there was luminol testing done, which showed a positive reaction, again, a presumptive test, for blood at the right side of the stainless steel sink. So the sinks had been washed of blood. Okay, this family area here, did you also have an opportunity to observe it? Yes, I did. And was there a good amount of blood in that family room? There was blood consistent with two children being stabbed, yes. Let's talk about this couch that is going to be on, actually, let's call this the West Couch. Was there any cast off blood on that West Couch? I didn't see any. What type of blood did you see on that couch? It was a very minimal amount of blood, if any at all. It would be a transfer smear type. What do you mean by a transfer smear? The first object had been bloodied and then is rubbed against it like an arm or a leg. Would that transfer smear have been consistent with a five-year-old child being stabbed at the far end of this couch or near the far end of this couch, closer to that big screen television, and then actually traveling in some manner, either on his hands or knees, or walking and rubbing up next to this couch as he walks towards the glass end table? Sure. And there was an additional finding that supports that. Okay, and that additional finding is what? It was a child's bloody handprint in the floor near this couch, which it looked like a child had supported himself or attempted to support himself with the bloody hand. Did you find any bloody handprints, small bloody handprints on the couch itself? I don't recall any. The blood that you found on this couch, was it consistent or inconsistent with an indiv individual laying on her back with her head on this portion of the couch closest to the big screen television, having been cut in the neck, having a puncture wound to the left side of her neck, closer to her left shoulder, and having a right arm cut on this couch. Was it consistent or inconsistent with that in your opinion? It would be inconsistent. Why do you say that? From the amount of bleeding that I observed in the kitchen and on Mrs. Routier's t-shirt, there was substantial bleeding from her. And unless she was attacked and immediately within a microsecond, got up from that area, there should be some blood left from her injuries. Did you detect any bloody footprints leading from this couch toward the kitchen area? Do you recall those? No, I don't. Okay, now you said that you had been out to 500 death scenes as part of your work as a medical examiner's agent, correct? That's right. And have you received training in the overall analysis of death scenes? Prior to becoming a field agent, I was an autopsy technician, but not really death scenes. Well, I had instructions from personnel out at the medical examiner's office prior to doing that activity, but there was no offsite training for that, no. Did you form an overall opinion about the crime scene as it appeared at 5801 Eagle Drive? Yes, I did. 
And what opinion did you form? It appeared staged or altered. Why do you say that? From the appearance of the kitchen, the blood was consistent with someone standing there and bleeding at the kitchen sink, and the sink had been cleaned up. All of the blood that I saw or observed is a slow motion, nobody is in a hurry type dynamic. The wounding of the children appeared to be controlled and precise. And with the exception of the youngest child, there was minimum movement of the children after a precise attack. The cut screen on the garage was curious. Home intruders don't cut screens, they pull them off windows. Let me just stop you right there. Let's talk about that window and that screen. Looking at States Exhibit number 10, when you are referring to the window and the screen, are you referring to the window shown in States Exhibit number 10? Yes, I am. Were the screen and the window itself actually brought to you by the Rowlett Police Department? Yes, they were. Have you had an opportunity to examine both of those items, sir? Yes, I have. With regards to the screen, did you make a determination of whether the screen had been cut from the inside or the outside and the manner in which it had been cut? I have an opinion as to the manner in which it was cut. From my observations, it could have been cut either from the outside, it goes in a motion from right in a smooth cutting stroke to the left. The screen had to be restabilized with the hand. And then you do the downward vertical component of this T-shaped defect. If it were done from the inside, the person starts from left to right instead of right to left. Okay, did you observe any blood on that screen? No, I didn't. Did you have an opportunity to look at the windowsill portrayed here in States Exhibit number 10? Yes, I did. Did anything catch your attention as you looked at that windowsill? Well, the entire component? Well, just looking at the windowsill. Was there anything still in this windowsill? Was there any dirt or dust or anything that you can recall? No, maybe a fine layer of dust, but that's all. Could you see any scuff marks or blood or anything on this windowsill to indicate that someone had recently gone through it? No, there was a slight bend on the lower frame of the window screen, but other than that, no. Looking at the window frame itself, was that examined by yourself? The window? Yes, sir, the window. Yes, it was. Now, did the Rowlett Police Department supply you with hair samples that came from the defendant, Darley Routier? Yes, uh, Mrs. Routier came to the Institute and provided hair samples and blood. Did you find any hairs in the window that were submitted to you by Rowlett? When Rowlett first submitted the window and it came to the Institute, it was not examined thoroughly. A decision was made to send it to the Dallas Sheriff's Office for laser printing. It goes to the Sheriff's Physical Evidence Lab. Then it is returned back to my office for examination. The initial request was to look for scratches on the glass and there were scratches, but you couldn't do that with a kitchen knife. It would have to be something else. In addition, there was a hair found in the left side of the window within the window track. Okay, did you compare the hair that you found in the left track of that window to the head hair that had been submitted to you by Darley Routier? Yes, I did. And what were the results of your analysis? 
The head hair from the window itself had been forcibly removed and it had the same microscopic characteristics as Mrs. Routier. Were there any particular characteristics that you looked to to make that comparison? Well, there are a number of internal structural things that a microscopist looks at in doing side-by-side -side comparison. Her hair is treated or bleached and has some untreated root end components. So all of those things are taken into account. Okay, did you compare the length of her untreated, the untreated portion of her hair that she submitted to you with the untreated portion of the hair that you obtained from the window? Yes, I did. What was the results? The amount of untreated shaft on the found hair was within the range of the amount of untreated shaft at the time of her visit to the Institute. It would be contemporaneous? It could be. Looking now at State's Exhibit number 9, do you recognize the butcher block and the eight knives that are shown in that photograph, sir? Yes, sir, I do. Were they submitted to you for analysis also? Yes, they were. And if you will, if you will briefly tell the court what did you, what you did with those knives. An examination was made of each knife, handle, and knife blade for any possible foreign or trace material. And looking at the butcher block, if you use the numbering system of the lower knives, the number one knife, which is present in the block, was there. There is a number two spot that was empty. There is a number three spot that had a knife. And then the fourth knife that was on the far left end was also present in the block. On top of this butcher block, there are also five other knives that are sitting in their respective places. And so there is one knife missing from this butcher block that holds nine knives. Okay. Looking at the knife portrayed in State's Exhibit number 8, did you try to determine, sir, whether this particular knife would fit into the empty slot shown on the butcher block in State's Exhibit number 9? I didn't physically attempt it, but it could. Okay. Now, let me just ask you, did you find anything that you found to be unusual on any of these particular knives that you later analyzed? The knives from the butcher block, the knife that I described as number four on the bottom far left slot of the butcher block, there was obtained microscopically some material from the serrated blade of that knife. This material consisted of rubbery dust residue and a single glass rod. This glass rod measured about 10 microns by 40 microns and that would be about as half as thick as a thin human hair. But this glass rod was present on the blade of the knife. Did you compare that material that you found on the blade of, on knife number four to the material that makes up this window screen shown here in State's Exhibit number 10? Yes, I did. And what were the results of your comparison? The screen cloth is composed of a PVC or polyvinyl chloride type material or some derivative thereof, a rubbery material, black. This rubbery material encircles a core bundle of fiberglass rods that the fiberglass rods composing the screen are the same diameter and general appearance as the single glass rod fragment from the knife blade. 
In addition, upon test cutting, you can obtain different thickness sections of the rubbery material from the screen cloth that appear microscopically similar to the rubbery material or the screen cloth rubbery material was microscopically similar to the rubber dust particles from that number four knife. So the bottom line with regard to the material that you found on knife number four, what is your conclusion about that material? Knife number four could have cut the screen. All right. Mr. Greg Davis then says, pass the witness. And at this point, Mr. Douglas Parks, the defense takes over questioning. Mr. Lynch, you have testified regarding blood spatter and analysis. Do you rely upon any particular publications or authorities in your expertise in that area? There are several folks who are recognized in actually founding the science of blood spattering interpretation. Herbert McDonald, Bob Spaulding is probably one of the first folks involved with the science early on. Dr. Stone at the Institute has been involved with blood spatter analysis, and that would be about it. Are there any publications that one could go to if we wanted to learn about blood spatter without going to work for a crime lab or something, a layperson deciding he wants to learn a little something? Where would one go? Yes, sir, there is a text by Herbert McDonald on blood flight characteristics. Any forensic science section of the library has any criminalistics book would have a chapter on blood spatter, just about any. About when was Mr. or Dr. McDonald's book written? I don't know. During the course of your investigation, both on the scene and at Swift's, did you have occasion to make notes and write reports and things of that kind? Yes. Did you bring copies of that material with you today? I brought the originals. May I take a look at those? Sure. While I'm thinking about it, Mr. Lynch, have you undertaken to group or attempt to recognize in some way whose blood was there at the scene? That is an ongoing process in our DNA laboratory, and I have not been told any results, if they have results. Okay, so... As we speak today, we don't know right now that the blood that you have testified about, whose is where? I don't know. They might know. Who is they? Caroline Van Winkle is doing the DNA work. Out at Swift's? Yes, sir. Okay. Has she given you any indication when she thought that that work might, would be completed? No, sir. She has not. You went to the scene on June the 6th, 1996 at about 12.30 p.m. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, and about how long were you at the scene, Mr. Lynch? We left about 3.30. And who went with you? Catherine Long, a forensic serologist at the Institute. Did you take any samples yourself at that time? I didn't. Now, Miss Long took some samples at my direction do you recall off the top of your head where those samples were taken from? Sure, she... I initially asked her to do presumptive testing in the different bathrooms. And as we worked our way through the house, she took blood samples from inside this stainless steel sink that I testified that I thought was cleaned of blood. She did presumptive testing on the water faucet and that was positive. She took some sections out of various areas of the carpet in the den or living area. How did she do that? 
with scissors, just cut the fiber strands. On that visit, she took a sample from this light switch where she smeared, where the smeared blood was in the kitchen. And I think she took maybe a total of nine to 13 blood samples. Is it your plan to analyze all of those? Well, I'm not sure what requests have been made by the state as to how many of what types to analyze. Okay, all of that would have gone to Caroline Van Winkle? Yes, sir, that would be a question for her. You indicated that you went out to the utility room section. Yes, sir. And you saw some drops of blood there on the floor. Is that correct? That's right. Did you see a black baseball cap on the floor? The cap was not in the middle of the floor as indicated in this photograph, so I didn't see it at the time. But where was it, if you remember? My understanding from the person who recovered it said that it was maybe like between a washer and dryer or not in an obvious area. Were you there when they recovered the cap? No. Any reason that you know of why it would have been moved to a central location to be photographed? I don't know. Were any blood samples taken off of the cap? I think there were, but again, that would be a question for serology, DNA. Okay. Now, did you see some blood not on the floor in that utility room? I believe there was some on the higher up appliance type materials. Okay, washing machines, something like that? Yes, sir. Do you recall what type of, was that drops or smears or do you remember? Well, I don't recall. What about on the door itself, going into the utility room from the kitchen? Do you recall seeing any blood on there? Yes, sir, there was some, a transfer smear type on the inside surface that also continued into that part of the door that fits flush with the door facing. Okay, what about the door that leads from the utility room into the garage? Did you see any blood on that door? Well, that was the door I was just talking about. That was the door you were referring to? Right, okay. Did that blood smear on the door leading into the garage also have at least a partial bloody fingerprint? I don't recall. I was leaving the identification and characterization of fingerprints up to the police personnel. You indicated that you proceeded into the garage and saw some blood out there. Is that correct? That is right. Where was that? There is, as you come out of the utility room and take a left towards the window, there is a freezer. Down in that floor, there was some sort of sign, a plastic sign, maybe this big, and there was some, not a discernible blood footprint, but a light shadow of transfer smeared type blood. Okay, did it appear to be a footprint transfer? It could have come from a shoe. You indicated that you were advised that it was probably left by a police officer. I was advised that it was not seen earlier. Who advised you of that? Retired Lieutenant Jim Cron with, okay. So what we know is there is what appears to be a part at least of a bloody shoe print in the garage there when you got there, but you don't know. Well, I don't know if it was a shoe or a bare foot or what. It was in an indiscernible smudge of blood. Okay, were any samples taken of that as far as you know? Yes, we took samples. 
and Caroline Van Winkle would have those. Uh, Kathy took it and delivered it to Caroline Van Winkle. Okay, any other blood out there in that garage area that you saw? No, sir. You testified, Mr. Lynch, that you saw nothing in the utility room that would have been consistent with a blood-soaked knife having been dropped in the utility area. That's correct. Now, would it be fair to say that... Well, let me just ask you this. What is a blood-soaked knife in your estimation? Well, it would be one like we got at the Institute. It's literally coated with dried blood when we got it. It was very bloody when you got it? Yes, sir. Okay. If a knife is used to commit an offense, a stabbing of this kind, and let's just assume that an assailant stabbed, did the things that you understand happened in this house today, took a knife with him through the kitchen and put it down on the floor, would you expect to see signs of that necessarily? Put it down on the floor? Yes, sir. I would expect to see an outline of it. That would assume that the knife was bloody. Right, right? If the person had wiped the knife off, of course, it would not necessarily leave any signs. Is that, would that be fair to say? Yes, sir, that's right. Whether it was laid down or dropped? Yes, sir. Because whether or not you see signs of a knife having been dropped or put down or placed at a particular location would depend more on the amount of blood on the knife than it would anything else. Would that be fair to say? Yes, sir. All right. At this point, Mr. Douglas Park says, Your Honor, Mr. Huff whispers in my left ear that it's going to take us a little while to go through these reports. Would this be an appropriate time? And the court then says, You mean to read the documents that you got about 30 minutes ago or an hour ago? Mr. Park says, Yes, sir. Mr. Wayne Huff then says, We just got these, Judge. I'm a little faster reader than that, Your Honor. Oh, okay. Mr. Douglas Parks then says, I can ask him a few other things, but I am just suggesting that I am not going to be able to finish before we have to review them. And the court then says, well, we have already got it interrupted now. Why don't we just recess until 1.30? You may step down. And then when everybody comes back, the court then says, okay, let's go back on the record. Mr. Parks says, I'm ready. May I proceed? The court then says, yes. This is a resumption of the hearing. The defendant and her counsel and the state's counsel are present. All right, go ahead. So Mr. Parks then says, would you mark these, please? And thereupon, he gives some items to be marked only for identification. And then again, uh, begins the cross-examination. And again, this is Mr. Douglas Parks, the defense attorney, Darley's defense attorney. Mr. Lynch, let me show you what has been marked as defendant's exhibits number... 10, 11, 12, and 13. Are those the original of your reports and notes that you furnished to me prior to our lunch recess? Yes, they are. Defendants 10 is my report of June the 28th with accompanying notes. Defendants 11 is my original report with notes dated June 20th. Defendants 12 is my report of June 17th with the accompanying original notes. And Defendants 13 is my report July 5th with the accompanying notes. Mr. Lynch, let's go back just a moment to the bloody footprint in the garage. If I understand you correctly, you were not able to tell whether that was made by a bare foot or a shoed foot. Well, or even a foot, it's a smear impression of blood. Was a photograph made of that? I don't know. 
When you got there about 12.30 p.m. on June the 6th, what was the condition of the blood at the rest of the scene from the standpoint of, was it dried, was it not, or do you recall? For the most part, it was dried. Do you recall a plastic runner that came from the entryway back through the hallway into the den area? You are talking about the large rectangle piece? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I do. And as best you recall, was the blood on that runner pretty much in a dried condition by that time? Pretty much, yes, sir. And in the kitchen? Yes, sir. I don't know about the rug. The rug may still have had some moist element to it, but it was... Was the rug... I'm sorry. Was the rug in the den area still there when you were there on June the 6th? The rug in the den? Uh, which one was that? The carpet? Oh, the white... Yes. Yes, it was. Did you have occasion to do any investigation of the blood and other trace evidence on the carpet in that area? The floor area had previously been looked at for hairs, and we received those in the laboratory. I did the tapings of the coffee table glass in that area for hairs. Kathy Long, at my direction, did take some blood samples from the carpet. Who do you understand took hair samples before you got there? It would either be David Main or one of his associates. David Main being the property person at the Rowlett Police Department, is that correct? He was working the crime scene when I arrived. Okay, aside from David Main, who do you recall being at the crime scene when you and your assistant arrived? Uh, Detective Patterson, Lieutenant Jim Cron, and there were several other Rowlett officers that I don't know their names. Were they uniformed officers or plain clothes? There were at least two uniformed, yes, sir. Do you know about how long Cron had been there? He told me he had been there since early on. Okay. And was he still there when you left? I don't recall. Okay. I don't recall if he was or not. Okay. In the den area where the boys were found, besides blood and hair, did y'all collect any other kind of evidence? I asked, or it was done, that a strip of carpeting behind the couch, between the couch and the glass doors to the backyard, was cut up and collected. Why was that? There were what appeared to be some foot impressions on it, bloody foot impressions. From a barefoot or a shoed foot? I don't know. Were photographs made of that? Yes, sir. Have you done any testing on that piece of carpet since you had it cut out? I have not. Serology, or DNA, may have. Is that in the kind of shape where you will be able to determine whether it was made a barefoot or a shoed foot? These were not distinguishable patterns. If it were a shoe, you couldn't include or exclude shoes, in my opinion. I would, the more I think about it, I would have the opinion that it was a shoe more likely than a barefoot. Other than the clippings for blood that you have talked about, was the handprint cut out, the small handprint? Yes, it was. Was that done at your direction? No, sir. Okay. The handprint was cut out, or the shoe print, or the footprint, or that print behind the couch was cut out. Anything else that you recall being taken from the carpet there at the scene? From the carpet itself? Yes. Other than various blood samples? No, sir. What about glass? Did you observe any glass on that carpet? I didn't, no. Did you look for any glass on that carpet? 
I looked for anything that may be there and I don't recall glass being there. I was not specifically looking for glass. Okay, did you find any blood on the wine rack? I didn't, no. Do you know whether anyone else did? No, I don't know. Any blood under the wine rack? I don't know. I didn't look underneath it. You have indicated that you found a hair in the track where the, if I understand you correctly, the window is raised up and down there in the garage. Is that correct? That's right. Did you make any sort of investigation of the window in that garage area? How many windows on the lower level along that wall? How many windows? Does that make sense? If you were to go into the garage and raise the windows, how many windows would you raise? At least two. There may have been three. I don't recall. Did you inspect the window that was where the screen was not cut to see whether or not it was locked? No, I didn't. If we assume at this point, Mr. Lynch, that a person, the intruder, came into the house through the screen, went into the house and stabbed these two children and Mrs. Routier and made his escape back out through the garage area, back through the back window, which way would you expect the flap on the window screen to be? It could be either way. In doing test cuts on that screen next to it, this rubbery material and the fiberglass that the screen cloth is made of is very elastic. So you may go through one way and have it oscillate either way. And the way it ends up is due to physics beyond my control. If a person had done that, would there necessarily have been blood on the windowsill or on the window? Could somebody who had bloody clothing get through there and not leave blood? Yes, it may be possible. Is it possible to know how bloody a person would even necessarily be who did that? Is it possible to know, having done this wounding, how bloody that individual would be? Yes. I would for sure expect bloody hands, but beyond that would be speculation. With respect to going over a fence, would you expect to necessarily find blood or scuff marks on the fence if a person went over a fence? It may not be found. It may be so slight that you did not find it. The hair that you found that has the same characteristics, I believe you testified, as Mrs. Routier's, that was found some period of time after the screen was collected. Is that correct? The two screens were collected and the window was collected and the hair was found after the window had come to our laboratory to the sheriff's department, the physical evidence section, and back to our laboratory. I was not necessarily looking for it. I was lifting the window to look for, again, scratch defects, as was the original request, and then the hair was seen. Okay, you found some material inside the butcher block. Is that correct? Catherine Long removed some material from inside the butcher block. Okay, the fiber or the fiberglass rod that you found on the knife. Right. Is there any way to know how long that had been there? No, sir. Are you presently aware, Mr. Lynch, of any other type of material that a substance such as that might have come from other than a window screen? You are asking what other materials contain fiberglass? Well, yes, fiberglass with this rubberized or whatever. Well, I have looked at a number of items that are made with fiberglass and the only one that it really wasn't even similar 
but the fiberglass in conjunction with the rubbery residue is the inclusion or exclusion of these other items and the diameter of the glass rod. Some black electrical tape has fiberglass in it, but the black sticky resin that accompanies that fiberglass would be different and would be discernible on a knife. Okay, with respect to the rate of travel that a person would have to go, and I'm not trying to be facetious, Mr. Lynch, I know that you can't tell us in miles per hour, but can you give us some idea of how fast or slow a person in your expectation would be moving to leave the blood drops that you observed at the scene? Could it be a slow walk, a fast walk, or I would characterize it as a slow walk. Did you see any indication from that blood evidence that you saw out there that day that anyone had run through the house while they were bleeding? I'm sorry? Did you see any indication of anyone having run through the house while they were bleeding? The only drop that I saw with any velocity was on a wall heading toward the front door, lower portion of the wall to the right as you are going out the front door. Do you recall whether or not there was any blood on the front steps of the house? The front steps? Yes, sir. I don't recall. Mr. Lynch, you have indicated to us that after having viewed this scene, well, first, let me ask you, you went out there on June the 6th. I believe you indicated that was the first time you went out there. How many other trips did you make? I made one other. And about when was that? That would have been about the time that the crime scene was to be released. I don't recall the exact date. 10 or 11 days later, something like that, sir? 10 or 11 days later, something like that, would that be about right? Probably, it would be in the notes. What did you do at that time? It was a final visit to look at other items. We went out specifically, we went out and looked at the back gate area where the latch was and there was some stained material that looked like blood, but was not blood. And also in the driveway, there were some dropped similar looking stained material that looked like blood, but was not blood. I went into the jacuzzi area there in the back. So it was just a general re-walk through the type of visit. Did you take any other evidence that day that you recall? Catherine Long took additional blood samples from the white carpet in the den. So that carpet was still there at the time. Yes, sir, it was. Do you know when it was moved? No, sir, I don't. On that visit, in taking samples from the carpet, do you recall having seen any glass on that carpet area? No, I don't. A couple of things, Mr. Lynch, and I'll be through. With respect to the size of the fiberglass sample that you took from the knife, yes, sir. You told us the dimensions of it, but that doesn't mean much anything to me. Can you compare it to the size of something? Yes, I also testified that it is about half as thick as a thin human hair. About how long would it have been? Four times the thickness. Okay, so it's not really visible to the unaided eye. Okay, you can see it with magnification? Only. Only. Yes, sir. Okay. With respect to the area of the sink where you indicated that, in your opinion, that there had been some cleanup, how does the luminol process work? 
It works in a similar way that the other presumptive blood testing works, is that the iron in hemoglobin is a very strong oxidizing agent. And if you are able to cause the present of iron to oxidize your reagent chemical and get some type of reaction in the instance of luminol, a fluorescence, not a fluorescence, but maybe a phosphorescence, then any occult or latent blood may be visualized in darkness. Then do you have to, what, take an infrared light or something? No, sir, it's bright upon its own. Okay, were any photographs made of that process? Do you know? I think there were. Do you know who did that? I believe that was done with the assistance of Richardson Police Department. Was that before you got there? It was done in my absence. Okay. It was done after my first visit. How much blood would there have had to have been there before there would be a reaction to the luminol? Well, you can't say. It's a very trace amount. Okay. Will it react to anything other than human blood? Sure. What? Copper will give a reaction, and that's the main one. There's some other items that I don't recall right offhand. Well, Mr. Lynch, you have indicated to us that after you had visited the scene, looked at it, and studied it, that it was your opinion that this scene had been staged or altered. Is that correct? That's right. Based upon your examination, if you would please tell us, in light of that, what you believe happened to be consistent with the scene as you found it to be. What do I believe the scenario was? Yes. At this point, Mr. Greg Davis says, well, you know, again, I'll ask that the witness testify if he is capable of answering the question and feels qualified. If not, then I would expect the witness to tell the court that, and then the witness says, the, in not only with the scene, but in comparing body examination information of the children and other things, it is consistent with the older child being stabbed twice in the chest, at least twice in the chest, in the den area, in the floor. The younger child, it seems quite consistent with him receiving possibly some injury in the floor and righting himself, and then coming around the couch and either collapsing on his own or being attacked again and falling at that spot. The sink area, it is clear that an adult stood there after either doing self-wounding or after being wounded, and the blood being shed into the sink and down the front of the sink into the floor. After that, and then at some point, the stainless steel portion of the sink is cleaned. At the point when the blood is still wet, the wounded person comes out of the sink area at least once. There is a wounded person walking from the kitchen sink area to the door leading into the garage. The screen is consistent with having been cut from the outside with someone with an arm stretch who can make a right to left smooth uninterrupted stroke. If you cut that screen and you stop it all, then you just get significant jags. This is a very smooth cut. The screen is restabilized with the left hand, a cut is made perpendicular, and the bottom of that perpendicular cut is the rubberized material covering these fiberglass bundles is significantly denuded. By that I mean there is more fiberglass bundle exposed and therefore that would be consistent more with a serrated knife than with a straight edged knife. 
And the other view of the crime scene is there was obvious paramedic intervention and creation of some artifact. Mr. Douglas Parks then says, are you able to tell whether the wounded person at the sink who made at least one trip away from the sink was the same person or could it have been a different person who made the trip to the utility room? It was a barefooted person. I'm sorry, I didn't understand your question. The person with the bare feet, could it have been the same or different going towards the door, leaving the blood? Yes, it could be the same or different. Okay, but we know whoever it was, was barefooted. Sir, we know whoever it was, was barefooted. Going toward the door to the garage? Yes. No, I don't know that. Okay. Were you able to see any places in the kitchen area, let's say between the island and the wine rack, blood drops that appeared to you to have been stepped in by the time you got there? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? The blood drops on the floor between that between the island and the kitchen. Do you recall that? Yes, sir. And the wine rack. Right. Did you or were you able to determine whether anybody had stepped in any of that blood before you got there? When you view, view blood at a scene where there has been police traffic and paramedic traffic, you always have that in the back of your mind. There is always artifact creation. From what I saw, it didn't seem to be significantly disturbed while wet. While dry, I don't know. Okay. On the wine rack, Dr. Lynch, did you see any glass on that wine rack? I'm not a doctor, but did I see any wine glasses on the rack? No, any glass on the wine rack, bro broken glass. Oh no, I didn't. Had the glass been removed before you got there, or did you see the broken gla wine glass yourself? There was glass fragments still in the floor when I got there. Okay, what about the stem and base? Do you remember seeing that? I don't recall if it was still there or not. Okay. At this point, Mr. Parks says, that's all I have, Your Honor. And Mr. Greg Davis then begins his redirect. Mr. Lynch, uh, just one question about the cap that was found in the utility room that was submitted to you for analysis. Did you find any hairs inside the cap? Yes, I did. And were you submitted a head hair from the body of Devin Routier? Yes, sir. And did you make a comparison between the hair you found inside that baseball cap with the head hair from Devin Routier? Yes, I did. And what was the result of your comparison? The hair was consistent with one of the children. I can't remember which. You have my notes. So it's either consistent with Devin or Damon Routier. Is that correct? That's right. No further questions. Mr. Douglas Parks then says, nothing further, Your Honor. And then the court says, all right, you may step down and they excuse uh, Mr. Lynch. But next what they do is Mr. Greg Davis, the prosecutor, um, recalls Darren Routier and Mr. Greg Davis then asks Darren, says, please state your name. And he says, Darren Eugene Routier. Are you the same Darren Routier who has testified previously in this case? Is that right? Yes, sir. 
Mr. Routier, let me ask you, on June the 14th of 1996, did you and the defendant, Darley Routier, go to your son's graves? Once in the morning and once at night. All right. So you were there during the afternoon of June the 14th. Is that correct? Yes, sir. While you were there, was there a cameraman there from KXAS Channel 5? In the evening, there was. Do you remember also, during that period of time, that same cameraman actually videotaping a portion of what was happening out there at the gravesite? Yes, sir. Did you and your wife, the defendant in this case, actually give a videotaped interview to Joe Munoz of Channel 5? Do you remember that? Yes, it was a kind of a small interview. Yeah. Okay. We did speak to him for a minute. Mr. Routier, if I showed you a videotape of those proceedings, could you tell me whether this videotape truly and accurately depicts what happened out there on June the 14th? If you would, please look at the videotape I'm showing to you now, please, sir. Whereupon, the videotaped interview was played in open court and the proceedings are kind of a non-verbatim transcript of the video as follows. And at first there's an audible, then it has Darley saying, we can't let you know an audible. And then the commentator says, the flag. I mean, why? What was it? And then Darren says, well, the significance of the flag is that on Memorial Day, we were down the street and we were all leaving to go home. We had had a barbecue with the family and swimming in the backyard and stuff over at her mom's house. And I went to the front to load up the truck. I mean, I opened up the back hatch and there was two American flags in there. And I said, Damon, where did you get these flags? And he said, I got them down the street. And I said, well, I saw those flags when we drove up. I said, those don't belong to you. And he said, I know. And I said, well, then you can take them back. Well, he had walked about two doors down instead of four, and he said, you know, I told him, you need to take those back because I said, the police are going to get you. You cannot steal stuff out of somebody's yard. And he said, well, daddy, I just wanted them for my clubhouse. And I said, well, I'll buy you some. I'll get you some. We will get you some for your clubhouse, but I want you to take those back because those people are going to miss them. So that is what he did. And he just went, about two doors down and just stuck one of them in the ground and then he laid the other one on the grass because he was lazy just like any typical kid and i was watching him and i pointed my finger at him and he knew that if he was going to satisfy me he would have to put them back exactly the way they were so that was the story on the flags and the commenter then says they were good kids darren said they were good kids and we tried to teach them right we didn't teach them anything that we didn't teach them anybody was bad. They still believed in other things that we are taught as kids. Darley then said they believed that everything was equal and it was inaudible. They did not see the world clearly as adults have to see it. They saw it as, okay, I'm just like you and you are just like me. And that is really the way they were. Darren then says they never looked inaudible, but they would try and then Darley says, they were giving. They were very giving. Darren says, right. When the Rowlett Needy Children's Fund started and we went to the house at Christmas time, they were willing to go home. They wanted to go home and they wanted to take all their old toys and they wanted to take any toy. I mean, you know, plus we 
bought new toys that we were going to take up there to them. And they just wanted to do that. I mean, they were just giving type people. I mean, they learned that from us, but we saw it come, but we saw it through them. The commentator then says, your sweetest memory of these boys. And Darley says, I have a lot of sweet memories. I could talk for you to you for days and days and days, but you would have to come and spend a, a come and move in. But, um, then Darren says, how about the, Darley says, no, we can't tell them that. And Darren says, well, what about the videotape? And Darley says, the Home Alone house was a sweet story. Darren says, yeah. And Darley says, when we first bought this house, this is so sad because I mean, it's sad, but it's sweet because it's just the way they were. But when we bought this house and we were having it built, the movie Home Alone had come out and they just loved that movie. They thought it was, you know, just the all-time movie. And so they kept calling our house the Home Alone House. They kept telling everybody, this is our Home Alone House. This is our Home Alone House. And they said, Mommy, when we get in the Home Alone House, we want to take a sled to go down the stairs like he did in the Home Alone House. And I mean, I was saying, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. And you know what? If they were here now, I would let them do it. Darren then says, well... They would, to an extent, they would get a pillow and they would sit and drive a pillow with the soft part on their rear end and they would go bump, bump, bump all the way down the stairs until they would get to the bottom. It wasn't straight, it was at an angle, the staircase. And our house was not as big as the one in Home Alone, but that was how they would describe it because of the fact that they would, this is how they would describe it because of the fact that they, I mean, they were little when they moved into that house, I mean, that was three years ago. And you know, when you are four years old and they recollect things and we recollect things, it was just a couple of weeks ago that we had pulled the video camera out and I finally got it working again. And we were watching the videotapes of when they were that little and Damon could hardly talk. And you know, Courtney has been a big part of their lives too because they have experienced Christmases and Thanksgivings together. And I mean, we did that with all of our friends and all of our family. I mean, all of our friends are our family because when you are a lot of times you come from another place and you come to Dallas the friends that you have around you are your family away from your real family the commentator then says let me ask you why the balloons why all of this now and Darley says well because even though we are sad because Devin and Damon aren't here we try to hang on to what we can to get us through these times and if you knew Devin and Damon you would know that they are up in heaven and they are up there having the biggest birthday party that we could ever imagine. And they would not want us down here to be down here being sad, even though our hearts are breaking. I know that Devin and David would want us to be happy. They wouldn't want us to be crying and they wouldn't want us to be, well, not to, not to be happy. They would want us to celebrate as if we were with them because in a way they are with us because they will always be with us. No matter what we are doing, no matter what we are thinking, they will always be a part of us. And not just Darren and I, but they have touched a lot of people. The commentator then says, what do you think about the man who did this? Darren says, we won't get into that. The commentator then says, no, I mean, what do you feel, your emotion? What do you feel when you think about what happened? And Darley says, we get very sad. We cry a lot, we get sick, we get very angry. We get very angry because this person is still out there and he is doing whatever he wants to do. And we are just like in a time warp. It's like we are walking in limbo. We don't know whether we are coming or going, you know, and he is free. He is free to do whatever he wants. But I know 
that he is not going to be free for long. And I feel that. I feel that, you know, the support and the hard work that these detectives and policemen are putting into this is incredible. It's just, just beyond the call. I mean, then Darren says, they are using some high-tech stuff on this investigation, stuff that I wouldn't believe and hadn't even seen in the movies. But they are taking absolutely no. They are sparing no expense. I mean, they are doing the most and the best job they possibly can. And Darley says, they will find him. And then Darren says, they are going to find him. Darley then says, they are going to find him. We are having prayer groups everywhere. Everybody is praying. I said, God's hotline must be, you know, must be swamped because everybody everywhere is praying and we can feel it. The commentator then says, what do you remember from that night? Darren says, fear. Darley says, fear and pain. But you know, even when I was, what had happened to me, I didn't feel anything because I was in shock. But I wasn't thinking about me. All I was thinking about was trying to save the babies. I mean, Darren and I tried to save the babies, but it was too late. But we tried, we tried, and we have to live with that forever. Darren then says, we have to live with what we saw, what we saw in their eyes. Darley says, nobody, nobody can ever imagine. Darren says, it happened so fast. Not that anybody could have done anything about trying to save them any faster than what I could. I mean, you just keep going over it and you, what if it, what if I had done this? And what if I had done this? But if you have never lived in fear, then you will never know. Darley then says, you will never think of those things. You know, people, Darren then says, we understand anger, but we didn't teach it. Darley says, no, people, unfortunately, in our world, gossip is the biggest evil in the world. And unfortunately, there is nothing you can do to stop it. And we are not going to make an issue out of this because anybody that knows us knows how we were, how we lived. You know, they know the story and we don't have to explain ourselves to anybody. Darren then says, if they don't know us, then it doesn't matter. They can't do anything to us. They can't damage us any worse than what we are. The commentator then says, bottom line, what would you want to say to the person who did this? Darren then says, hopefully we can get into that when we catch him. Darley says, I think he's a coward. I think he's a coward because he went after two. He went after something that was so innocent. They couldn't fight back. And then he tried to turn to me, but he had to go to them first. And to me, this is such a cowardness. Darren then says, what kind of animal goes after a weak sheep that is asleep, is completely lifeless, and attacks the weakest person in the room first to be able to get off on whatever he was thinking that he was going to accomplish? I mean, I kept hoping and praying that this guy had stolen something out of my house, that he had picked me and my family because I had more than some or that he had or more than this person. That way I could, in my heart, think that, well, living large is the reason why we got targeted. The commentator then says, now you don't know why. And Darren says, now we don't know why. Now we don't, now we know that this is a sick individual that took absolutely nothing from our house, but took two of the most important things that were important to us away from us. That is the part we don't understand. That is the part that we may never understand. But our goal now in our lives is to live our lives by the way that God wants us to, so that we can be with our boys again, and that they will be still be five, and they will still be seven, and they will still be playing and fighting. And at this point um, in court, the tape ends. Greg Davis, again, he's the prosecutor, asks uh, Darren, Mr. Routier, let me just ask you now, does state's exhibit number 27 accurately depict what occurred there on June the 14th? Yes, sir. Okay. 
Mr. Greg Davis then says no further questions. Uh, Mr. Douglas Parks, the uh, defense attorney, says no questions, and the court then says all right. Mr. Davis then says the state will rest. Mr. Parks says we will call Jim Cron. Mr. Davis says the state will object to that. May we approach the bench, please? And the court says sure. Mr. Davis then says, well, I'll make my argument from here. I don't think that the law contemplates that the defense at this time is entitled to go into a full-fledged discovery hearing. I don't know if the law requires you to allow them to put on any evidence on at this time. The entire burden in this hearing is on the state of Texas. I feel like the state of Texas has met its burden. If the defense has any right at all, I believe in this hearing that they have the right to put on evidence that they believe to be exculpatory or mitigating. This is not what is about to occur. If you will inquire of counsel, you will find that counsel has not talked with any of the witnesses that they are about to attempt to call on this hearing. They have no idea whether these people have exculpatory or mitigating testimony to give. And what we are about to do is we're about to launch off into a two-week deposition. And I would submit that this is not what the law contemplates. Mr. Parks then says, well, in response, Judge, I would make the same invitation that Mr. Davis made to the defense just a few minutes ago. If he has got some law that says that we're not entitled to that, then he ought to trot it out for the court. Mr. Davis says, I don't have to. You see, the law says, and the case law very clearly says, that the burden of proof is on the state of Texas. Mr. Park says, well, the burden of proof is on the state of Texas during the course of the trial. It doesn't keep the defense from putting up evidence in order to try and persuade the fact finder to a different view. The court then asks, who is Mr. Cron? Mr. Parks then says, Mr. Cron is a retired Dallas deputy sheriff who was called to the scene. If you will recall, Charlie Lynch indicated that he was out there doing blood work and crime scene work. Mr. Greg Davis says, Mr. Cron is one of my witnesses. He is the witness that was called by Rowlett to help in the crime scene search of that residence. In no way is he a defense witness. If the defense were really serious in trying to put on, to put on something, we would see witnesses coming from the defense, but we're not. The court then says, well, gentlemen, I'm about to recess this and I would appreciate counsel meeting me in chambers. Uh, Mr. Davis says, yes, sir. Mr. Park says, yes, sir. And the court says, we will talk about the, this then in chambers. We will be in recess until about 2.30. So once everyone is back in court, um, the state says the defendant and her counsel and the state's attorney are present. The state has rested. What says the defense? Mr. Parks then says again, Your Honor, we would like to call Jim Cron as our first witness. The court, given, having given an indication that the court is not inclined to allow the defense to call Jim Cron, I would then suggest respectfully to the court that in the event we were allowed to call Jim Cron, that he would testify that he is a retired lieutenant from the Dallas Police, the Dallas Sheriff's Department, that he has many years on the job, and he is a trace evidence and forensic scientist type expert, that he was called to the scene of the crime on June the 6th, 1996, by someone in authority in the Rowlett Police Department, that as a result of that call, he went to the scene. He did various investigatory, investigatory tasks. I believe 
that he would testify that he collected blood samples and he took photographs and that he investigated the scene thoroughly in cross-examination. I believe that the defense will be more will be able to more clearly place the scene of the crime before the court so that the court could better evaluate the credibility and the believability of the state's witnesses on direct with respect to particularly the blood and other trace evidence. We believe that his testimony would be both helpful to the court and very likely, depending on because of the nature of this crime scene, very likely be, to some extent at least, contrary to the testimony of the state's witness on direct. And I would respectfully request the court to allow us to put Mr. Cron on. The court then says, are you in a position of suggesting how it might be contrary to earlier theories advanced by statements? Mr. Parks then says, well, no. The court then says, I'm not asking you to do it with direct precision, but Mr. Parks says, I cannot tell the court that I can specifically say to you what particular evidence Mr. Cron would speak to is contrary to what the state's evidence has already been. I couldn't know that without hearing his testimony. The court then says, and as I understand the defense position is that this particular witness and some others you have been unable to talk directly with up to this point. Mr. Parks then says, it is my understanding, Your Honor, that this particular witness, along with the other witnesses about whom I will speak, have either been instructed or have indicated that they will not talk to the defense unless a representative of the district attorney's office is present, which we consider to be a refusal to speak to us at all. We don't follow the district attorney around, and we wouldn't expect him to follow us around. The court says, well, would the state like to be heard? Mr. Greg Davis then stands up and said, yes, sir, if I may respond to the last point. The state has made an offer to the defense on more than one occasion to make paramedics, police officers, and the like available to the defense for interviews with a stipulation that some employee of the district attorney's office be present. On each occasion where we have made that offer, that has been refused and turned down by the defense. I would like to either directly ask counsel or have the court ask counsel what the basis for his belief is that retired Lieutenant Cron took photographs or took blood samples from that residence since he has not spoken with Lieutenant Cron. I fail to see the basis for that assertion, assertion, excuse me, and either through the court's questioning or my own, I would like to hear what the basis of that belief is because I don't think that assertion, I don't see how that assertion can be made by counsel at this point. He is not in any position to make that assertion in good faith. And Mr. Parks then speaks up and says, well, I listened to Charlie Lynch testify. Mr. Greg Davis then says, well, I listened to him also, and I didn't hear Charlie Lynch say anything about Cron taking photographs or samples. But I think again, just to sum this up, I have heard nothing from counsel that would indicate that this witness has any exculpatory or mitigating testimony to give. This is just speculation or guesswork on the part of counsel. And I would suggest to the court that what we would be engaging in is just sheer discovery, a fishing expedition. And for that reason, I would ask that the court deny this request. The court then says anything else. Mr. Park says not before the court's ruling. The court then says, okay, the defense requests to Cron. How do you spell that? And Mr. Park says, Jim Cron, C-R-O-N, your honor. The court then says, Mr. Cron, that request is denied. Mr. Park says, your honor, 
may we call Jim Cron to the stand so that we may make a record and ask him those questions that we would have asked him for the purposes of the hearing to make our record. The court says, well, that wouldn't, what purpose is that going to serve? If the fact finder isn't able, going to be able to consider it. Mr. Parks says, so that the Court of Appeals can determine whether or not we should have been allowed, Your Honor, to hear his testimony. The court then says, in the event it develops that there is something that is beneficial to the defense, Mr. Parks says, yes, sir. The court then says, okay, I am not outright denying your opportunity to do that. I'm just not going to grant that at this time. If you will remind me, we will make sure your record is developed fully, okay? Mr. Parks then says, yes, sir. The court then says, who else do you want to call? Mr. Parks says, please, the court. We will now call Sergeant Matt Walling, and we would respectfully suggest to the court that in the event that Sergeant Walling is called to testify, that he would testify that he is a sergeant with the Rowlett Police Department, that he was the second person on the scene, that he entered the house with Officer Waddell, that he viewed the scene as he saw it and proceeded with Officer Waddell to the back of the house in search of an intruder. We would hope to develop through Sergeant Walling, since we have not been able to up to this point in time, who was responsible for the preservation of the scene. And I would respectfully suggest to the court that Sergeant Walling could tell us that. Essentially, the same argument with respect to Jim Crime. This is a person who was probably the second person on the scene, has not been called by the state, even though this is a motion upon which they have the burden of proof. We believe that if Sergeant Walling were to testify, that his testimony would indicate matters contradicting the testimony of Officer Waddell and or other state's witnesses that would impact the court's view of the credibility of the state's case and would make less likely the court's belief that there has been sufficient evidence to hold this defendant without bond. And we respectfully ask the court to allow us to call Sergeant Walling. Mr. Greg Davis then says, well, Your Honor, I would have made, I would have the same argument as I made with respect to Lieutenant Cron. And that is, again, I know of no basis how counsel can state that Sergeant Walling would in any way contradict or impeach any of the testimony given by Officer Waddell in this case. I don't think that assertion can be made in good faith to this court based on what counsel knows concerning the activities or the prospective testimony of Sergeant Walling. And again, this is going to be a discovery expedition. And I would also say that just as an overview here, you know the state gets to make the decision as to how it meets its burden of proof. I may do that through one witness or through or 100 witnesses. So the fact that I don't call Sergeant Walling has no bearing in this case with regards to what I should have done or what he would like for me to do, what counsel would like for me to do. Again, the same same argument as with Cron. The court then says, at this point, do you have anything that you can suggest to me that will indicate some area of contradiction other than presumptively any two people observing the same event would tell it with at least some difference? Mr. Parks says, just my life experience, judge. The court says, okay. Mr. Parks says, you know that the court says, all right, well, your request to call Sergeant Walling of the Rowlett Police Department is declined. Mr. Douglas Parks then says, and we would make the same request with regard to Sergeant Walling, calling him for the purposes of making our bill. The court says that request is denied at this point, but you will be given the opportunity to perfect a bill. Mr. Parks then says, your honor, the defense would like to call De Detective Chris Frosch 
and we would respectively, respectfully suggest to the court that if Detective Frosch were to testify, that he would testify that he is the partner of Detective Jimmy Patterson to whom this case was assigned. That he worked both with and in conjunction with Detective Patterson in interviewing witnesses and in interviewing perhaps this defendant and certainly her husband. We believe that if Detective Frosch were to testify that he would testify to items contradictory to or casting doubt upon some elements of the state's case that would make it likely that this court would, or at least likely that the court would view the testimony of the state's witnesses that it has already heard in a light less credible than that in the present state of the case. Detective Frosch was active in the investigation of this case and we believe that his testimony is necessary to a full and complete hearing of this matter and we would respectfully request the ability to call him. Mr. Greg Davis says, well, again, I don't know how counsel can make a statement that he believes Frosch would testify to items contrary to other witnesses presented by the state, other than I don't know what he is basing that on, other than life experience again. So again, we have the same argument that we have previously made. The court then says, your request to call Sergeant Frosch. Mr. Park says, Detective Frosch, F-R-O-S-C-H. The court then says, okay, that request is declined. I will give you the opportunity to develop the bill. Mr. Parks then says, Your Honor, we would like to call paramedic Brian Koshak, and I am not sure of the spelling. I believe it is K-O-S-H-A-C-K. The defense believes that if paramedic Koshak were called to testify, that he would testify that he was on one of the two responding ambulances that came to the scene on Eagle on June 6, 1996. He could testify as to the activities of he and other paramedics with respect to the treatment attempted on the children, where in the house they went, what part of the scene, if any, they stomped through, and essentially place the crime scene itself in a better perspective for the court to be able to determine through their eyes, as almost the first people on the scene, what the scene was originally and before police officers and other people came through the scene, since this is a case relying entirely upon circumstantial evidence. The scene, as nearly as possible, being developed would seem to me to be necessary for the court's full consideration of the issue before the court today, and we would like to call him in order to move this along somewhat, Your Honor, with respect to that and the paramedics. We would ask not only to call Brian Koshak, but to call Captain Dennis Vrana, V-R-A-N-A, Jack Colby, C-O-K-O-L-B-Y-E, Rick Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, Mike Youngblood, and Todd Higgins, all of whom essentially could provide the same sort of testimony that I have just described with respect to paramedic Brian Koshak. Mr. Greg Davis then says, and again, I would re-urge the same argument I previously made with the addition, I believe the record or the court's file will reflect that previous to this date, the council has had the opportunity to take the oral depositions of two paramedics employed by Rowlett Fire Department, Eric Zimmerman and Larry Byford. With that, I'll rest. The court then says the request to call Koshak, Colby, the other two or three that you mentioned, unless there is some showing that can be made, such as I requested on Cron and Walling, the ruling is that you may not call these witnesses at this time. Mr. Park says, yes, sir. The court then says you will be given an opportunity to develop your bill. Mr. Park says, yes, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. Finally, Your Honor, 
we would call Sergeant David Neighbors of the Rowlett Police Department and Officer Jeff Craig of the Richardson Police Department, both of whom are crime scene persons. I believe that Sergeant David Neighbors was in charge of the crime scene for the Rowlett Police Department and that he or someone else in authority with the Rowlett Police, Police Department called Jeff Craig of the Richardson Police Department to come to the scene. We believe that their testimony would be would very like the testimony of Lieutenant Jim Cron, and we respectfully request the court allow us to put that testimony on. Mr. Greg Davis then says again, I would re-urge the same argument to the court. The court then says, other than whatever the record presently shows about the participation of any of either neighbors or Craig, do you have anything specific that you can advance? Mr. Park says, no, your honor. The court then says the request to call neighbors and Craig is denied at this hearing. Counsel, the state has offered apparently to give the defense access to these witnesses if they are present. Do you want me to recess this and let you take them up? You can have an opportunity. It may or may not develop some of the matters that I have indicated that I would be prepared to hear. If I can know in advance that there is some real likelihood of it being developed, Mr. Park says, yes, sir. If the court is offering us a recess at this time to interview some of these people, we would take that up. The court then says, well, I thought I heard Mr. Davis for the state indicating that you have had that, that there has been an outstanding offer. Mr. Park says, yes, sir, and we would be glad to avail ourselves of it. The court then says, do you think it might be appropriate for another short recess and let you lawyers talk and see if you can work out any kind of a schedule? It strikes me that it is not very valid to start a hearing and not try to get it completed. Mr. Davis then says, well, just so I am clear, is this counsel's proffer to interview those people in lieu of taking oral depositions? Mr. Park says, no, sir. Mr. Davis says, well, I know the offer made. The court says, well, excuse me, counsel. Mr. Davis says, yes, sir. The court then says, I take it that the defense position then is, unless it is a formal deposition, that you do not want to take advantage of the opportunity to discuss whatever these witnesses might know or whatever they might tell you about, as long as there was a state's representative present. Mr. Park says, no, what I'm saying, judge, what I will say, judge, to the court and to Mr. Davis, is that I will be glad to talk to these people, find out what they know, and after having done that, it may be that I will not take their oral deposition, but I will not commit to not taking their deposition sight unseen. Mr. Davis then says, well, the state's offer has always been the same, and I'll state it now. We will offer these people for interviews by defense counsel in lieu of oral depositions. That is how this whole matter started. When I made the offer, that was not good enough so that oral depositions were started in this case, and I'm not going to be put in the position of having them interview the people and then turning around and taking a half a day of my time and the state's time to then take their oral depositions. The court then says, well, the state's position was that a non-depositional interview is in lieu of the deposition. Is that correct? Mr. Davis says, yes, sir, that is true. The court, I didn't understand. Mr. Davis said, yes, sir, that is the condition. Mr. Park says, judge, there is a civil... The court then says, so I gather that this offer is under terms unacceptable to the defense. And Mr. Park says, yes, sir. The court then says, so it looks like that it's... Mr. Park says, well, there's a civil case that is going on at the same time, and I cannot afford to waive my right to take depositions in that case. 
The court then says, well, this hearing is not concerned with the civil cases. And Mr. Parks says, I understand that, Judge. The court then says, well, the defense request to call the persons that were not called by the state that apparently were at or near the crime scene at relevant times at this point in time, this has been declined by the court. You got anybody else that you want to call? Mr. Parks says, no, sir, that completes our list of witnesses at this time. The court says, so the defense rests subject to the bill. Mr. Parks then says, your honor, prior to resting subject to the bill, we would offer into evidence the, or at least, well, ask that the court take judicial notice of and offer into evidence for the purposes of this record, the two both responses that I have previously given to the court in chambers and the two writ jackets from the previous bond reduction hearing. I believe I have those numbers beginning with WX and I can't recall the exact numbers. The court then says, I understand. Mr. Parks says, yes, sir. The court then says, all right, is that this? Mr. Parks says, yes, sir. The court says, all right. Mr. Parks says, would you mark these please? Whereupon the above mentioned items were marked. And Mr. Parks then says, your honor, we would offer at this time what has been marked as defendants exhibits 14 and 15. And these are the files in cause numbers. And then he goes on to give the numbers. Mr. Davis says no objection. The court then says received. And Mr. Park says, may I just have a moment, your honor? The court then says, yes, sir. Mr. Park says, your honor, we would lastly recall to the court objections and arguments, our argument made to the court with respect to the jurisdiction of the court to render a judgment in the case. And for the purposes of the record, it was essentially the position of the defense that since Judge Toll has heard this matter on a motion to reduce bond, that that particular matter has been appealed and is presently on appeal in the Court of Appeals for the 5th Judicial District here in Dallas, and that that case is set for submission on September 5th, 1996, and that this court does not have jurisdiction to act on the state's motion today, and we would ask the court rule on that particular issue. And the court then says, as I understand it, you are asking that given the trial court actions before in regard to a bond reduction hearing and its present appeal that is pending. Mr. Park says, yes, sir. The court then says that because of those facts that this court does not have jurisdiction to entertain the state's motion, which this hearing is all about is whether bail is to be denied outright or not for the defendant awaiting trial. Mr. Park says, yes, sir. The court then says the defendant's motion or request that this court determine that it has no jurisdiction to entertain the application or the motion of the state to hold the defendant without bail, that motion is refused. That this court by inference, obviously, as I am ruling in this court, does have the authority to entertain the motion that the state can file the motion and seek a hearing on this. Mr. Park says, that being the court's ruling, your honor, we would respectfully request the court to recess this hearing until such time as the defense can bring an appeal to the Court of Appeals with respect to the court's just rendered decision regarding jurisdiction. The court then says, do you have the authority? And Mr. Park says, no, sir. The court then says, well, the defense motion to abate any further proceeding on the state's motion, that relief is denied. I assume that if you have no witnesses, we are about to hear some argument. And Mr. Park says, we have nothing further, your honor. Court then says, all right, the state has the burden. Do you want to open the argument? Mr. Greg Davis says, well, if we could, before we argue this matter, I would like for the record to reflect that there are several people in the gallery available here today, among them being the defendant's mother, Darla Key, her sister, Dana Stahl, 
and the defendant's husband, Darren Routier, is still available at this time. And what appeared to be a number of people on the second row of this gallery, and I would like the record to reflect that at this time as we begin the arguments. And, Your Honor, I am going to keep my argument very short. I know that you were listening to the evidence and I'm not going to rehash it for you. I am just simply going to say that the state of Texas has met its burden of proof in this case through clear and strong evidence that not only would a jury find this defendant guilty of capital murder as we have charged in these two indictments, but also that they would answer special issues in such a way that this court would be required by law to impose a sentence of death on this defendant. And we have met that burden of proof. And for that reason, I would ask that this court respectfully that if hold this defendant without bond pending the trial of this matter. Thank you. The court then says, thank you. Mr. Parks then says, please the court, your honor for approximately 25 years. Uh, now I am telling juries in Vordaire uh, that the constitutional right that we as citizens have to a presumption of innocence exists, if it exists at all, in the hearts and the minds of the citizens who sit as jurors in cases of this kind. And with due respect to the court, to judges who are called upon to make decisions, such as your honor is called upon to make this afternoon, our constitution, both our United States constitution and our Texas constitution, tell us we have that right. But until and unless juries actually afford us that right, we don't have it. The same can be said of judges in the position that your honor is in this afternoon. This is an attack on the presumption of innocence. It is, to my way of thinking, a fairly cynical attack on the presumption of innocence because the state has had ample opportunity to develop a record to hold this defendant without bond. It has declined to do so. Until such time as it is apparent that the bond now set by this court, which is set at an amount 20 times higher than any bond has ever been approved in a capital murder case by the Court of Criminal Appeals still does not satisfy them. Fearing, I suppose, that a citizen accused of this offense might actually post bond. They have brought this motion just ahead of the Court of Appeals hearing and hopefully the decision to reduce the bond in this case as it should be reduced. They have not, I respectfully suggest to the court, brought proof evident to this court what they have brought to the court is a great deal of speculation, an incomplete case. Their own blood work is not done. We don't know what it will show. They're asking this court to overlook a constitutional right basic to the jurisprudence of this country on speculation, incompleteness, coulds, and maybes, because that is what we heard from their witness. It could have happened that way. It could have happened that way. Their own medical examiner would not even answer a direct question because you see, Your Honor, whether or not her wounds are self-inflicted are crucial in this case. It's obvious because if she didn't cut herself, then someone else did. And the only thing that their medical examiner could say was she could have done this. And when I asked her, would she tell us in reasonable medical probability whether you believe that happened or not, she flat refused to answer the question. And that is the quality of the state's case here today. Proof evident? I don't think so. I respectfully suggest to the court that if this had been a trial before the court, it would have been the court's duty and responsibility to direct a verdict of not guilty in this case. We respectfully asked the court to deny the motion before this afternoon. And the court says, thank you, counsel. Mr. Greg Davis uh, says, well, again, you know, my position is very clear. What we have shown to you is this, that the individual down here, Darlie Routier, very savagely killed her two children during the early morning hours of June the 6th, 1996. She butchered these two children, 
with very deep, repeated stab wounds. We have shown you very thoroughly through the presentation of the physical evidence in this case that the three different stories that she told two authorities concerning this event, none of them are consistent with the physical evidence that is found out there that day. The amount of blood in that den, the couch is inconsistent with her version where she said that she was attacked on the couch. The amount of blood and the type of blood found near the kitchen bar and the wine rack are inconsistent with the struggle with this unnamed intruder over there. And then we see a scene there in the kitchen where we see no velocity or low velocity blood drops throughout the entire kitchen. And by her own story given on June the 8th, she is running through that kitchen area three separate times. Yet we have don't have any blood indicating that that occurred. The only footprints we have are leading from that sink that has been washed and near the countertop that has been wiped off clean, leading back from that kitchen sink and back to that den. Darren Routier told you that he didn't kill those two children. There were no other adults in that house. He never saw an intruder, heard an intruder, or saw a car or heard a car. We also know from what Charlie Lynch has told you that the knife that is still in the butcher block has a particle on it which microscopically matches the particle on the window screen. And I would say to you, that indicates to me this is a very calculated killing that this individual right over there, Darley Routier, went outside before those two boys were killed and cut that screen, attempted to make it look like an intruder had come in through that window, and then came back in and savagely killed Devin Routier and savagely killed Damon Routier, and then very methodically and slowly walked through that kitchen to the utility room, back to that sink, cut her throat, stabbed herself, bled, and then cleaned up the mess and very neatly laid that knife up there on the countertop so that she could tell the officer, oops, I picked it up. Golly, I probably messed up the prints, but here is the knife. What you have got from there on is an individual who has shown a lack, a total lack of remorse. That videotape is a disgusting scene where you see almost a grotesque scene on June the 14th where this person has not only shown no remorse, but is able, eight days after butchering her own two children, to sit there and laugh and joke with a newsman. It's just like Darren Routier said, whoever did this is an animal who slaughtered two sheep, two little lambs. That is exactly what we have shown, your honor, thank you. The court then says, thank you, counsel. Do either of you have any authority you want me to look at in regard to the standard? Mr. Park says, your honor, we would ask that the court consider the standard as set out in Beck versus State, blah, blah, blah. The court then says, excuse me, item two here. He says, yes. Um, they then go on to discuss uh, this information. Uh, finally, the judge says the court is going to retire to consider the evidence here. There are obviously some documentary evidence that has been presented and some exhibits that were presented that have been in the hands of the lawyers or the witnesses and not the fact finder. And I'm going to review that. It's 328. I'm not certain as to how much time might be involved. So therefore, counsel, do you have any pleasure? You want to, Mr. Park says, we will be here. Mr. Greg Davis says, if the court would like to, court then says, do you want to set a time for it? Perhaps tomorrow. And then they set a time to go over the um, court's decision. And at that point, they dismiss for the day. The next morning, which turned out to be, it was August 28th, 1996, uh, a Wednesday at 9.30 in the morning, they all gathered back at the um, in the courtroom where they had their hearing to hold Darley without bond. And uh, the court then speaks up and says, all right, gives the case number and uh, styled the state of Texas versus Darley Lynn Routier. 
The state's motion to deny bail is granted. If you will give me an order, I'll sign it. Uh, Mr. Davis, Don Davis says, may I approach the bench, Your Honor? Yes, sir. All right. Um, Happen to have a, a document handy. Court says, all right. Thank you. I will read over this and sign it. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming back today and for my ruling. At which point... Everything is recessed for the day and they just simply go over the documents. So within, you know, a very, very short, short, short period of time, they all come back and the court says, um, yeah, I'm going to say it's okay. Uh, Go ahead and and take her back to jail. And she is not allowed any bond whatsoever. We're going to just simply deny her bail. And that will do it. That will do it for this uh, particular, hey, let's hold Darley without bond uh, hearing. You've kind of heard everything from a detective to uh, Darlie's husband um, speaking at this this trial hearing. Um, and it's been very interesting. But uh, what we next get into is kind of the meat of the, the whole case. And that would be her uh, actual trial and what happened there. And, uh, and some things that maybe have happened um, since that time, which is very interesting. So nonetheless, this has gone um, again quite some, quite a bit longer than I expected. But with the upcoming actual trial uh, information, this is just going to be even longer than this. So please don't forget that uh, if you want to keep on top of these, please subscribe uh, through your favorite podcast service. Um, actually, and like I said at the beginning, I have now set up a, a separate area on my uh, YouTube page that is just strictly related to this particular case, just because there is so, so much involved. Uh, You can go to YouTube and just find everything there. Um, And as a reminder, I mean, if you enjoy this podcast, you keep coming back to it and you want to become a supporter and get a few extra perks, consider becoming a Patreon. Uh, Just simply go to patreon.com forward slash beachhouse34, or you can actually go to the beachhouse34 podcast, on Instagram and the link is right there in the bio. So again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I will be back soon where we will start off with the, the actual trial transcripts of Darley's case. Thank you.